right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of About the Job, a podcast about career discovery. And uh, today I'm doing an interview with my friend Lawrence, who is a full stack developer who I met from TikTok. How's it going, Lawrence? It's going great. And for full transparency, we met on TikTok. I don't know if we work for TikTok. I don't make that kind of money. But yeah, glad to be here. Okay, so uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Lawrence's journey into uh, full stack development. All right, so um, to to get us started, can you describe uh, in the simplest terms possible uh, what it is that a full stack developer actually does? Sure, I'll sure give it a shot. Um, it's one of those funny things about tech that it's different at every company. Uh, but for the most part, for any application or program or system that you're designing and building, uh, there'll be some layer that has a visual component for the end user, whether that's a website, a game, a VR experience, uh, or even a desktop application. Uh, there's code that directly contributes to that visual layer. And so we call that the front end. And then there's code that is more back end. It contributes to the logic, it might be data, data processing and storage, a variety of code that is happening on the back end. It doesn't directly contribute to the front, but it's usually tied. So when you put those two together, you're talking about the full stack. So that's like the simplest form. Uh, and again, that completely varies by company because at some companies you may do a lot of database work. You may do a lot of continuous integration and deployment. Um, you may do some DevOps stuff. You may have to know some things about the cloud. So by the position of the company, it changes. But for the most part, it's talking about the front and back ends of the program. Okay, and uh, how long have you been a full stack developer or something similar? Let's see. So I've been in my current role for three years. I was full stack developer one and now a full stack developer two. So three years here just recently. And prior to that, I had, gosh, I think it was technically, I say a year all the time, but technically it was like nine or 10 months uh, in a web developer role. That was my very first role in tech. And uh, the part, that's an important part of the story because uh, the company I was working for went bankrupt. 50, 60 of us were going to one day and went home like, okay, what now? Fortunately, I was learning and building my skills, growing my network. So I wasn't fun employed for a long time. But yeah, nine or 10 months at the first place and three years in my current role. Okay, and uh, what was your educational path into this career? How'd you uh, learn the skills oh, necessary to land this kind of role? Sure. Uh, I think I, I would give the most direct answer to that because there is like a part B answer that would probably take us all night. But uh, most recently, uh, studying was a lot of online resources. I'll start with most of the names that people, probably most of your listeners have heard of already, places like uh, Free Code Camp. I did. I think all of the front-end web developer, they call it a certification, it's not a real one, but yeah, all the front-end developer track. I did two different courses, two or three different courses on Udemy. I think I signed up for about 20 of them, uh, but I actually completed two or three, including uh, Colt Steele's front-end developer. Um, I think he calls it Bootcamp. And then a complete course on Udacity.com as well. And I have to include CodingPhase.com. I always leave that one out, unfortunately, because it's not... One of the majors, but it was a online learning platform started by someone who I have a ton of respect for uh, in the developer space, a self-taught developer himself who went the corporate route and then eventually went into teaching and 
building out courses, so I learned a ton there. Um, so mostly all online resources, a uh, little documentation, not nearly as much as I should have, because I was kind of a shock getting used to reading and learning and building from documentation later on. So I really wish I had used more documentation early. Uh, my documentation was YouTube videos, to be fully honest with you. So that was enough to get me started as far as the learning phase into my first role. Um, after I was there, gosh, maybe four or five months, it was clear that it was not going to be a very deep and heavy development position. There was a lot that I had to learn that just wasn't in my sphere of influence. The position itself was actually on a marketing team. I was the only developer on a marketing team. So the IT team was completely separate on a different floor, didn't even have them as colleagues. And so I took the extra step even while I was in my first job in tech and all happy and celebrating. Like, hey, I need to learn some more. And things worked out really well where that fall, so I was hired in the summer, that fall we began seeing advertisements for a boot camp that was coming to town here in the Memphis area. I live in the, as I say, the greater Memphis area. And uh, the boot camp was free, which you know, that was really, really cool. And so I signed up for it. I was encouraged, but cautiously encouraged. Because at the same time, we had another boot camp uh, that came to town and I signed up for to learn more programming skills. And they had an age limit. Uh, I think it was, oh gosh, 18 to 30 or 18 to 35, something like that. And I'm greater than that age. I'm not going to go into my age right now. But I am greater than that age even then. And so that was a bit of a letdown. Like, okay, I'm too old to learn. Thanks. Uh, but fortunately, a second one came along. They're based out of St. Louis. The boot camp is called Launch Code. And uh, they came here for exactly one cohort, and we learned a lot. That's when I was my first exposure to things like Java and Spring Boot, Python and SQL. Uh, it was a really amazing cohort, these students. Uh, by the time we got toward the ending phases, the students that were left was an amazing group. Uh, our teacher was James Q. Quick. Many people might know him from various places in social media, TikTok, YouTube. He has Udemy courses out, a uh, huge Discord called Learn, Build, Teach, which is his platform and kind of the kind of the um, ethos that he works from, Learn, Build, Teach. So he was our teacher, which was awesome. Uh, we did have some very good TAs. And from the student group, uh, I'm very happy to say not only was I in that student group, uh, but another name people may know, Danny Thompson from uh, Memphis area. He was in that student group. So I would say we had some, some pretty cool powerhouses in our little cohort here. We all learned from each other and helped each other. And it was really good that I got that learning because we wrapped up in, oh gosh, the following summer. And like I said, the original position actually went bankrupt and you know laid a lot of us off like late spring. So pulled on my network, again, did a lot of applications and ended up landing at FedEx based largely on the strength of what I had just learned in the bootcamp of my experience with uh, Java and Spring Boot. Okay, so um, I'm curious, what about web development uh, drew you to learn that specifically? You said what about web development? Just, yeah, did you end up just kind of like falling into web development because of that marketing role, or it was that I did. That, I, that I honestly did. So the very first thing I tried to learn when it came to um, tech in general or programming in general. Uh, was a Ruby course that did not work out very well for me. And then I think there was a C-sharp course I had stumbled upon. Because again, at this time, I was not at all as integrated into the quote-unquote tech community or 
tech influencers or anything like that. So I'm just doing random things. And it wasn't until I started with Free Code Camp, uh, which gives you a very handheld, step-by-step ease into web development that things started to click. So the choice of web development uh, wasn't as um, purposeful as it was. It just was what was making sense in terms of a learning. Um, it just, things made sense. Things were, uh, a bit, you, know, you could see things in a visual way very quickly in terms of displaying things on the website. And so that's how I ended up in web development. Um, later on, like so if we, if we were to fast forward the tape and look at my day-to-day -day duties now, hopefully I'm, hopefully I'm analyzing the question. But it's not so much about web as it is just programming. It's just programming the logic, uh, what goes on uh, in my current company. Okay, yeah, so that would have been my next question um, to talk about some of the responsibilities that fall on you as a full stack developer. Absolutely. Yeah, so, talked about already. Mm -hmm, yeah. So, like I mentioned, full stack means different things in different areas. So, first things first, I'll say in my day to day, my team and I, the other developers on my team, our version of the full stack in our team and at our company really comes down to a few very straightforward ideas. Uh, we have, let's see, I think at last count, we have three internal GUIs, graphical user interfaces, uh, that are used as internal tools throughout the company. Uh, they display different pieces of information about data, which all goes back to packages. So I think I can share that. That will be a problem. I do work with FedEx services, uh, one of the many opcos under the FedEx brand. So with FedEx services, my team, we're under global hub and sort, which helps to manage the sortation of the packages at all of the different facilities around the world. And my team specializes in exceptions and special cases, or what we will call intercepts, when a package is going wrong for some, some reason or another, and all the rules behind that. There's tons of rules behind that. So we have three tools that are graphical user interfaces that are built on the quote-unquote front end. They're built in Angular, but again, even though we maintain those, again, the nature of our team and company, those GUIs don't change like very often at all. Like you, you stand them up and they're just there. There may be a small tweak needed here and there. The biggest changes happen when we add additional locations, ports, destinations, and things of that nature. And a lot of times that's just going to be a matter of different data that's being stored in the database in our tables that describes the different ports and locations and delivery spots. But for the most part, the Angular GUIs are just there. And there's one, no, there's two Splunk dashboards. We have a total of five things in the front end, three Angular GUIs and two Splunk dashboards. Um, but we don't spend a lot of time there. The vast majority of the time is just writing just tons of POJOs in Java and maintaining microservices that we've built in Spring Boot, which is a Java framework, well, Java library falls into the spring brand, lots of spring things. Um, even with that, many of those, when I started here three years ago, were already there, right? So we're not writing tons and tons and tons of new code on a lot of that. It's more maintaining, adjusting for different circumstances that come up as you learn about them. And new requests from the business, new things that they're wanting to try out in the field. Um, and I'm speaking slightly cautiously, there's none of this is under NDA technically, but I don't want to just get too, too deep in you know, getting into any trouble. But if you can imagine the sortation process and delivery of packages as new uh, new situations arise and new requests and new needs come in from what we call the business, which will be, so we're on the IT or the developer side that you have like over the wall, the business that is more directly in tune with what's going on with the customer, things that are happening literally at the FedEx store, issues and things that they need to be changed. 
we work on the Java code that can affect that. And so that's where we spend the vast majority of our time. Um, but we do have some new, really exciting new projects uh, with the integration with things going on in Europe. Um, yeah, I'm just going to say it like that. And so that does involve some new code. Uh, majority of the logic really is just data aggregation. There's just, just a crap ton of data uh, coming from, um, from a vendor or a company that we actually purchased. And we want to make sure everything is integrated between that company and our opcode in a very seamless way. Uh, that's where the most of our time is spent. Okay, that, that's a pretty good description. Um, and I know that every day is like different, but like your average day, how much of your time is like broken down in meetings versus like doing work versus like writing docs or hanging out? Gotcha. Yeah, eight hour day, probably seven and a half hanging out, and then 30 minutes. <laughs> not quite that bad. Um, again, because we're not just pumping out a ton of new systems and software, there's not a large amount of just straight heads down in the IDE cranking out code. Um, as opposed to saying just an average day, if I look across a week, that might be a better representation. Across a week, 50% or less of the time is actually coding. And, I, and including in that coding, I'm talking about anything with databases, anything we need to set up at our, we have a basic MySQL databases, and we're doing some transitions toward data stacks now. I'm learning about data stacks very recently. Um, anything with the databases, anything with configurations, there's tons of YAML files and um, um, config files um, that relate to either our continuous integration and delivery, which we use Jenkins for that, or our actual deployment onto our cloud platform. We use Pivotal, Pivotal Cloud Foundry. So that is sometime um, meetings at my level. So again, I'm a developer too. Um, at my level, maybe, gosh, maybe 10% meetings on a bad week uh, because there's a lot of, they, they actually do a good job so FedEx does a great job at certain things. I think meeting management is good, uh, is well managed because if you are not required to be there based on the level of your responsibility, then you probably won't get the invite. And if you do, and you have a conversation with your manager in that regard, I've gotten out of lots of meetings just like, I have nothing to say here. You know, I have nothing to contribute here. It's not going to directly affect me. They're going to have to have a meeting after the meeting to decide which parts I'll deal with. Can I buy out of this one and for most of the part? Uh, my manager is very reasonable about that. So, yeah, 50% or less coding, 10% or less meetings, a lot of configuration. Um, I do a lot of one-off conversations. I don't know if I give enough credit to that when I talk about my job and like TikTok and social media, because I'm one, I'll just call people. Call people, we'll have talks, individual developers, I mean, particularly those that are senior to me. Um, questions about code, best approaches to things, how some of those meetings have gone. Now, that's what I will do. I know someone's been in a meeting, they may have a break. I'll reach, reach out and we'll just talk about, hey, what came out of this meeting or that meeting? I'll let you kind of get heads up on what's going on. Um, and yeah, that is the majority of what I do. Uh, I think the, again, the nature of the business that I work in, the type of corporation where I work in, the type of problems we solve, there is a rather narrow range of issues that you're going to ever face and fix. It's a rather narrow, they fit into a few broad categories. Most of them deal with data, not data in the sense of data engineering, 
but just making sure that the flow of data from an initial customer and shipping a package to the end user, which would be whoever is receiving that package, making sure every piece of data about every package and every customer flows through the system in a very methodical flowchart type of way. That's the, like the biggest picture. And that most of the problems that we incur will fall within that range of, uh, of ideas. Okay, so you kept mentioning that you're a, a full stack developer too. Um, can you talk a little bit about what uh, the career progression could look like for a full stack developer at your company? Sure. So again, where I work, we have um, within my team and my org, and I keep saying that because I can literally, I'm thinking back when, back when, we, when we worked on campus, we have a huge campus in Collierville, Tennessee. I can literally walk from my building to another building of developers and they have just a completely different track about the way things work. So I only speak about my team and my org. Um, you come in as a full stack developer one, which for all intents and purposes is a general software developer. You're just a developer. If it's front end, you're doing it. If it's back end, you're doing it. If it's something going wrong at Jenkins or pushing to the cloud, you're doing that. Um, and you go one, two, three, four. I think we call three a senior. Um, four, we call an advisor. And then there is the potential to become an architect, if you want, um, which that person is going to be. And each one of these, the difference between each level is just the amount of responsibility and impact you're going to potentially have. That's, that's all it is. And that's pretty universal across tech. I think. But yeah, one, two, three, four. Three is called a senior. Four is called an advisor. If you want to, from there, you can go to becoming an architect. So now you're more looking at designing the systems that we're going to put into place in the future. They spent a lot of time in that area. Um, and then there is a principal. I'm not sure if we have a staff level position. I know we definitely have a principal. And then if you don't want to go um, too much farther on just that technical track, you can always break over and go in the leadership track, um, which obviously we have technical managers, uh, which do not necessarily have to have a technical background. That's something that's unique somewhat to FedEx. You do not necessarily have to be a coder to manage coders. Uh, well, yeah, you can go to the manager track where we have a manager, a director, um, and then multiple, multiple levels of VPs, and then, of course, uh, the chairman of the board, all the way up to the CEO. So a few different tracks. Time-wise, I'm not sure what's normal. I've been here three years. I've seen some super fast, you know, people just rise up the rank, like, you know, it seems like in days, other that, you know, it takes longer. So mine has been approximately a year and a half, if we average it out per Per level, I'm looking at, if things continue the way I expect, I'm looking at by the end of this calendar year, I should be up for another position. So I'll be a three, I'll be a senior on paper. Um, but yeah, that's what's kind of typical where I work. Okay, and you talk a lot about how uh, you like interacting with your team. Um, what are some of the other roles besides software engineering uh, that you interact with on a daily basis? Yeah, so out of all the developers, once we get outside of the developers, we have one, we have an architect. I think we have two architects now. Someone just got promoted, which that's kind of weird. But anyway, we have an architect. And again, her, her responsibility and her scope is all about big picture, all about designing systems, all about how everything that we produce and put out into the wild in terms of code interacts with everyone else in the world. Um, so she is an architect, a senior architect been around for quite a while, probably 10, 15 years, a super talented lady. Uh, we have a scrum master 
and a business analyst slash project manager. Yeah, so the Scrum Master is the person who's going to be um, all over everything that deals with Agile, Agile just being a methodology for getting product out the door for our product and software. And so whether we're talking about retros, whether we're talking about stand-ups in the morning, preparing for sprints, preparing for our IP sprint, preparing for PI planning, uh, definitely they're really kicking into gear. You see the full strength of their capabilities during our PI planning. They are very hands-on. Anything that has to be communicated to other teams as we're planning out our stories for the next 10 weeks, as we do 10-week PIs or planning increments, you really see them super in action. So that's a very valuable person. But we also have, like I said, a business analyst slash project manager. Now they share some responsibilities with uh, the Scrum Master, uh, but they're more so looking at the day-to-day goings-on and any they, they spend a lot of time trying to remove blockers. That's one of their biggest things. And I know by definition, that kind of falls in a Scrum Master too. So the way we have it on our team, both of their responsibilities kind of bleed over. But I know our business analyst slash project manager does a lot of time removing blockers. Those blockers can be other teams. Those blockers can be, hey, we're trying to do this, but it's an approval process that doesn't make sense. Or we need someone just to kind of to carry that paper along the process, so to speak. Uh, they do a lot of that. Um, we also have a product owner, but the product owner is not on our team. The product owner works with our team and about four or five others. Uh, they're the one who is the like really the go-to person for any system that we say, hey, beginning September 1, we're going to start working on building this new system for FedEx and we need it to be you know, out in the wild October 1. Well, the person who tracks that product from beginning to end as the product owner. Um, so they work with our team very, very closely, but they're not um, on our team. Uh, and then outside of that, yeah, so we have, like I said, we have one, two, three, we have three who are like level four developer level, which we call advisors, and then maybe two or three at that level three position, which will be, we call them seniors, then two or three at my level, and then two uh, below me. So a pretty robust team. And we also use a lot of vendors. So we just kind of pared down some of our vendor teams here recently where there's only a few left. But for a while there, we had like a very large vendor team that we were uh, kind of on to work with us just to get a lot of stuff out quickly. Yeah, and of course we have our manager who is a long-term FedEx employee. She's been there well over 30 years and you hardly ever hear that anymore because it's just it's just uncommon. Everybody's, hey, two years, I'm gone. You know, get my RSUs and a mix. But we do have, again, being an older traditional company and in the South on the top of that, we have a lot of traditional uh, behaviors uh, that you'll think of in terms of older companies. So very common for people to be uh, at FedEx 10, 20, 30 years. So my manager is one of those she actually started out as a courier or a delivery driver and worked her way up the system to be over a number of different teams uh, to the point where she is now over one of the better developer teams in the company, I think. We get called on to do uh, a lot of the new shiny stuff, if you can call anything that happens in my company new and shiny. We often get called to do that uh, as the company is continuing to try to be a little more forward thinking. We're typically one of the first teams to try out some of the new shiny stuff. Um, even, this is going to sound hilarious to some people, but even when we went to Spring Boot, I believe that happened within literally just the last five years. And Spring Boot has been around for way more than five years, but uh, part of the modernization uh, looked like that. And even going to uh, Angular GUIs as opposed to 
uh, something built out in, in a native Java library, like I think Java Swing. I think our original GUIs were in Java Swing, literally just a couple of years before I started, two or three years before I started. Uh, and, and Swing has been out like forever. So that's the majority of the roles that we deal with. And then our team is on is in an org with three other teams that report to our director. And then our whole big org, or our release train, as we call it in Agile language, reports up to a VP, senior VP. There's a lot of VPs, like we have so much higher than the eventually sees me. All right, so you said you've been doing this for three years at this company and uh, about a year at your previous company. So it's, it's about four years now. What are some of the things about the job that keeps you interested after doing it for uh, such a long time? Yeah, I. That's a great question. I enjoy. <laughs> this will sound crazy. I enjoy the fact that what I do affords me a uh, level of mental health, a level of personal time management, and an overall well-being that I've never had like in a very very long time which are all things that have nothing to do directly with code. So I'm not gonna tell you that, you know, when we work right certain types of programs, I just get all excited. My day-to-day -day is rather mundane, um, but I like it like that. So this is where, when it comes to picking careers and taking tech advice and things like that, self-analysis is so important. Because for me, what I do, like a lot of people would like just, you know, they would be bored in 90 days and be ready to quit. I'm happy. I'm happy because I am a person who went through a serious career transition. And again, I hope I'm not cannibalizing from another question later on, but uh, the majority of my career has been slaving away or just working away in the restaurant industry, every type of restaurant. Yes, a little fine dining, uh, fast family, casual, fast food or quick service as they call it. A lot of um, campus dining and worked at Jackson State, worked at Ole Miss. And I can name any number of instances from my restaurant career that are so much more fun, so much more interesting than anything I do now. Um, especially, gosh, when I was a server trainer for a restaurant named Isaac Hayes Music, Food, and Passion. So back when Isaac Hayes was with us, shortly after the Memphis Grizzlies NBA team first moved to Memphis, a bunch of signature restaurants kept popping up around town. One of them was called Isaac Hayes Music, Food, and Passion. It was in a place called the Peabody Place downtown. It was the place to go. And I was one of the server trainers there back in my restaurant days. And man, if you were a celebrity in Memphis, that was where you came. So when Layla Ali came through, she was there. Mike Tyson's uh, whole camp came through. Uh, tons of NBA players came through. They would play uh, the Memphis Grizzlies either the night before, typically. Uh, every now and then we would have something come kind of like midday if they had a uh, late night game. Um, actors, I've seen Denzel come through and uh, gospel singers and just, just a lot of people that like, this is really funny, exciting. You never know who you're going to see, who you get to wait on. You know, I never knew that Wesley Snipes was so short. Shout out to Wesley Snipes. He came to one of our little celebrity bashes, Magic Johnson. I mean, I've seen like all these celebrities and all these people back in my restaurant days, which was very fun, very exciting. But the flip side was I had no life. I had no life. And whereas uh, God and family are you know, very high priorities for me, after having all that fun, 
and all these interesting moments in the restaurant world and then coming to the house and not having anything left to give those that I love for years. That's a real letdown. That's that's a real letdown. You begin to feel, even when you start to make a little money, which I was doing okay financially in my last years in the restaurant business, you feel like an utter failure. Like, what is the point if I can't really enjoy my family like I want or, you know, I'm, I'm staying up all night just to try to give my wife some personal time that she absolutely deserves and needs. And so I traded some of that fun and I, I can even go into old Miss meeting NFL players and recruits and all recruiters and all kind of near deep stuff. But I traded that for a more boring life. <laughs> the day to day of writing Java code in IntelliJ and pushing it up on a certain branch and waiting for somebody to approve the pull request. In my particular world, that is not that exciting. And I love it. I don't need it to be exciting. Maybe if I was 25, 30, you know, I'll be just itching for, you know, more engaged activity, something that stimulates my mind and all these other criteria. And that's perfectly fine. I'm not shaming anybody for that. I'm just saying you have to know yourself. And for me, this, what many would probably classify as a mundane life is exactly what I want. Because with the exception of like weeks like this, where I'm on call, fun fact, I'm on call on my birthday week. That sucks. But with the exception of weeks like this, most weeks, I get started around 8.30 for stand-up and around 4.30, 4.45, I'm done. And I don't have to look at it again. And if somebody doesn't show up to work, I'm not getting a call at 9 o'clock or at 6 in the morning or anything like that. I'm not trying to cover shifts. All of the pain and all of those issues I'm able to put behind me in one fell swoop just from coming into a programming career. And uh, that's like literally the greatest benefit. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, so, what what is the interview process like for getting into uh, full stack development, at least um, at your company? Yeah, I'm gonna disappoint some people because I'm sure like a lot of you are gonna hear your podcast and it's gonna blow up. I just know it is, and they're waiting for me to talk about how many rounds of data structure algorithm interviews I had to pass and what the system design interview was, and all of these different things because that's what you read and hear about all the time. I had a behavioral interview, singular, a technical interview, um, singular, that was more so about my knowledge of programming and things that I've done, talked about projects. Um, I had someone on the hiring committee or the hiring board, the panel, uh, who already was aware of my coding ability and was able to relate that to the team. So that wouldn't be like a round. I wasn't present, but that did happen. And I was in. I was in. It was the most straightforward very fast. Thought the longest part was just HR at the end. That was a nightmare. But the actual interview process was literally just two interviews. And uh, the behavioral, I would typically always knock those out the park. Um, the technical, again, I didn't have to on site actually code anything. I did talk about some of my projects, things that I built with my GitHub, which is a complete mess. But I didn't actually have to do any live coding for my first position. And what I learned as I've been working for the last three, almost four years, basically, uh, in this whole tech world and trying to give other people advice that might be like me. Hey, you're an older adult. You're doing some random stuff that you hate. If you're thinking about programming, right, I encourage people to look at places like FedEx or Kroger or Walmart, or any other big American enterprise that hires a ton of developers, but is not a software company itself or a tech company itself. 
their main product is not tech. Because typically, now not always, but typically, if there's a huge company that hires a lot of developers and it's not a software company, there's going to be two things that are true. One, the interview process will not be that intense, which makes it a great starting place for the boot camp grads and the self-taught folks, the people that couldn't go to college or screwed up their college like I did. That whole camp of people, those are great places to start. Also, the pace, the onboarding, and the amount of personal development or the um, amount of coding development that you can have is typically a lot better um, just because things don't move as fast, right? You're not going to go to um, any, any big company, just any big for, Fortune 500 company, you know, work for Clorox Bleach for all you want. Things aren't going to move that fast at Clorox. <laughs> They're just not. These, these huge Fortune 500 companies, Fortune 10 companies that aren't tech companies, they're like gigantic ships in the ocean that have been sailing successfully for years, some of them longer than you've been alive. And so there is no impetus for very fast, rapid change, unless like the industry is just literally changing from beneath their feet and need to pivot before they're bankrupt, right? But typically they move a lot slower, which can benefit people who may not have a very long, deep, sweaty, as you would say, technical background. Um, so that's the kind of place where I work and that's what the interview process is like. All right. So uh, while we're on the topic, um, can you talk about some of the alternative routes, um, like different routes than you took to get into this kind of role and like which one you'd recommend for different people and why? Gotcha. What are the roles becoming a software developer? Um, I still maintain that the most preferable way to become a software developer. This, I'm just going to start saying software developer in general, because again, when every time I say full stack, I feel like a fraud. My time on the front end is I don't know, maybe 5% a year. We just don't do a lot with our GUIs. They, they're, they're out there. But anyway, for a software developer, person is interested in becoming a software developer, I still think the most reliable and um, most uh, efficient means is by getting a computer science degree in a traditional four-year bachelor's program. Um, if you can find a software engineering degree, even better, because it tends to emphasize more of the practical aspects of actually programming. But if not, CS degree is 100% uh, the way I would advise. You're going to get a greater depth of knowledge. You have more exposure points in terms of your professors, in terms of career services, the potential to get internships during your bachelor years. So obviously I'm thinking about a person of whatever age that you can still go back to college. Um, internship opportunities, open up an entire world of possibilities after you graduate because you do well, you have the opportunity for a returnship. If you don't go to college, there's no such thing as a returnship for you. Similarly, there's no such thing as an internship if you go the self-taught route. Those are just fields and avenues that are not accessible to you. So you have to look at plans B, C, and D, which is what I did. But I think for sure, uh, for the depth of knowledge and even for the variety of technical positions that you can get into after graduating, um, college is the way. Because if I go to XYZ Bootcamp, it's pretty much web dev focused uh, for the most part, right? Most of them are web dev focused. Um, maybe you can get good enough in one of the primary languages, be it Python or Java or C Sharp. Maybe you can get a generalist role, software developer role, such as what I have right now. You know, great, cool. But most of them point directly to that narrow direction straight after college. As, excuse me, straight after the boot camp. 
as opposed to coming out of college, hey, it is not at all unusual to become a developer, software developer, a web developer, a, a cloud engineer, any number of positions in that technical spectrum, which some of them are escaping me right now, but any number of jobs are totally, totally normal to get and expected with that background of a CS degree. They know the type of curriculum you've had, which you've been exposed to, and the directions where you should be able to um, succeed. So that would be definitely plan A. Outside of plan A, boot camps are great. Um, not all of them are made the same. You definitely want to get reviews, as many as possible. If you can get an in-person review, even better. But most of the data is out there now. You can kind of tell which ones are which in terms of quality. Most often, when you say boot camp, you're talking about $10,000 plus investment, which for many people is a huge amount of money. So that has to be considered. You know, that's that's a cost that has to be considered. Dropping this $10,000, this $13,000, $15,000 or more, and then trying to make some kind of a personal analysis of the likelihood of getting a job after, what it will pay and how you're going to recoup that money. Um, so obviously to try to help address some of that, some Boot camps are doing the income share thing where it's, hey, you know, the boot camp's free until you get a job and then you'll pay it back. That's a strategic choice. For some people, it makes no sense. Like they would completely ruin their life to say, I get this $60,000 job. I have to pay 15% back or 30% back for whatever number of years. But maybe their lifestyle, maybe they were already making 60000 So now they've just taken a significant drop in salary. So again, that's a super personal decision. But plan B would be one or other type of boot camp which I happened to go to a boot camp that was totally free, which was just amazing. Uh, their profit model is actually based on placement. So they position themselves to every, be able to take their students and get them into apprenticeships. And you know they have a basically like a sourcing agreement with different companies where those students are. Well, I worked things out. So I got my own job on my own without the apprenticeship. So not only did I not um, have to pay anything for the boot camp, you know, there was no income share or nothing on the tail end to worry about either. So that worked out really well for me. Um, and last but not least, people are completely self-taught. So there are people who have that level of self-motivation. They are able to read and learn or watch and learn. And they may do it on their own or do it in community. But there are a number of people who are beginning software developer careers in different circles of life uh, with no educational background whatsoever outside of what they pursue on their own. Um, and that could be the cost of, again, like Udemy courses, Udacity courses, something online or strictly free. Like you can literally learn the basics of, you're not going to learn a nice, good depth of software engineering on your own. That's probably that's not going to happen. But you can learn enough of how to code to be dangerous and potentially get a junior job. And the timeline I use for that is a person that just, quote unquote, goes hard. You're, you're spending two, three hours a day pretty much five, six days a week for a solid year. And then those last, I don't know, three or so to four months, you're switching over from learning to more so building and actually putting some projects together to be able to display. Not at all unreasonable to think after a year of consistently going hard in that direction, even self-taught, right, with just low and free cost, low cost and free resources, a person still potentially get a junior uh, programmer job, maybe web developer, generalist software developer something like that. So that'll be the three main paths that I can think of. College, which would be my number one recommendation, even though I tend to, because my college degree is like in nothing, like it's general business. Like, you know, I could probably get a job basket meeting with my degree. So my degree is meaningless. But so, and because of that, I tend to kind of hang out in the no degree camps 
but I want to be really, really clear about my identity and my thought process around the whole thing because I've been exposed to a lot of college institutions, for better or worse. And I know for sure that a collegiate education is 100% still the best, most reliable idea uh, to getting into this position, uh, this profession long term. Um, and, you know, the immediate argument was, what about the cost? If college costs 50 a year, you have to take out loans and all this. Even with all of the financial argument, when you think long term, not just the first two years in coding position somewhere, but when you look at it long term, the best benefit is absolutely 100% the college route. Without, and I'll argue anybody on that. Second to that would be a boot camp. But again, some people don't even need that level of structure. They can kind of push themselves. You, you do a complete self-taught route, which is pretty neat. I think that's one of my motivations about why I enjoy sharing, you know, breaking the tech content, which isn't for everybody. You probably agree with that, Whittington. It's not for everybody. But it's one of the very few career fields where self-taught is a possibility. You can't self-taught becoming a brain surgeon or a plastic surgeon, or anything medical, your path is very narrow. There is a very narrow path. And if you don't follow that path, you're not going to be a brain surgeon, at least not in America. Right? It's just out for you. You're not going to self-teach yourself to becoming a corporate lawyer or you know, a huge you know, a prosecuting attorney or any other high-paying field. Typically, there is a very narrow path, and you either follow that path or you don't become the position. And then you have this programming thing that we do which falls you know, in software development, which falls in software engineering, which falls in tech, right? And you can literally get started sitting at your kitchen table with a laptop and a YouTube course or a YouTube tutorial that just kind of wets your palate a little bit. And then you get a little deeper, a little deeper, and a little deeper. And over time, you can work from your kitchen table and get yourself into a junior programming role. I think that's that's a miracle. And I don't even know that we have many instances in America's history for any other profession that made itself available to the common man and woman in that way. So, yeah, that's why I'm here. All right, so a little, little side note. Um, this has nothing to do with software engineering, but you said no one uh, ever taught themselves to be like a lawyer or a doctor. So this is a funny story. Uh, there's this dude who lied about uh, being a doctor uh, to get hired on a Navy ship as a doctor. And uh, he didn't know, he had like no medical training whatsoever. And he had to perform, uh, I think like 17 surgeries. <laughs> he on that ship. Oh no. He read, he read a, a medical book oh, no. and, that described the procedure in detail. And he actually successfully performed all 17 procedures. You're lying. No medical training whatsoever. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> I need a link. Okay, after this after this podcast, I need a link. Oh my god! Wow. Okay, so I lied. You can become a doctor self-taught, but I would not recommend it. That had to be so scary. Like even doing it, like kill somebody, man. That's ooh, okay. Wow, I did not know that. Thank you. I've learned something on this podcast. This is why you come to on the job. Wow. Uh, so um. All right, so if someone green comes up to you and they're like, I, I did some research, I looked into like different types of software development, I want to be a full stack developer, what what are you going to tell them to focus on first to land that junior role? So the first thing I'm going to do is try to get some sort of uh, assessment of their background and see, you know, what technical depth they have, what mathematical depth, any kind of depth whatsoever. 
but you said green. And so if I'm just assuming starting from absolute zero, um, the easiest thing to do is for me to recommend them to start with free code camp. Um, because if you say full stack web developer, and that is their choice, they want to be a web developer. That's just a consistent platform that has online and in-person communities. There's actually free code camp meetups where people get together and help support each other in the learning journey. So there's people to help support you through the way. And, uh, you know, you can walk with you on your journey as they walk through theirs. Uh, the curriculum is open source. It's free. You know, I've actually spoken with Quincy Larson. He's been, I've been in a meetup with him. He's a stand-up person. I know he's not a person trying to scam you, you know, dangle a carrot in front of you and then, you know, try to get you on the back end or anything like that. It is a great place to start. And enough people have gone through the curriculum where there's just a gazillion people you can reach out to for help or any questions you have. And that will help to confirm whether or not you actually want to do web development. Um, because a person says, hey, I want to be a full-time developer, web developer, et cetera. All right, great. Let's give you an opportunity to do something for free that you can do completely self-paced to see, do you really want to do web development? And then within that sphere, do you like some of the visual aspects? Do you like centering divs, <laughs> you know, working with colors and animations and anything else is visual? Or do you like more of the back end? Um, even within web development, you can discover that as you are learning and growing on free code camp. Um, and then after that, so my typical track is I say do uh, free code camp, um, the basics, HTML, CSS, enough JavaScript to be dangerous. I think the, the book, You Don't Know JS, all right, Kyle, um, oh crap, what's his name? Anyway, Samson, Simpson? Kyle Simpson. Called, yeah, yeah, You Don't Know JS, and it's very true. Like nobody knows JS. You learn enough JavaScript to be dangerous. And then a single framework, um, which I think their track is React, and and stop right there, right? That, so that's my thing. Do that much, stop right there, and then go to another platform, right? So that's going to give you um, some better depth on the back end, and maybe a, a more industry-like uh, back end language, such as your Python, C Sharp, or Java. Um, JavaScript is obviously riddled with its issues, uh, so I like to, to get some good solid programming under the belt, which would be very helpful for getting that first job as well. It's really hard to go in 100% Java uh, JavaScript to get that first job. I've seen people, unfortunately, who went to boot camps and it was like just the merge stack. So just all JavaScript, that's all they know. It's very challenging. There's too many people that know that and other stuff. So I would then send them to like another platform to get some more programming experience in a more American enterprise language like Java, but much maligned Java. Nobody likes Java. And I'm so glad I did some research two years ago that says that was 2020, but we're going to pretend like it's current. The Java was still the most widely used programming language in American enterprise. I started using that phrase a lot, American enterprise. So if we get out of just Spain and big tech and all these fancy things, we look at American enterprise as a whole. What is running the country, right? From supply chains to grocery stores to banks, and all these other institutions that are really the foundation of the country. Over 50% of them are all written in Java, which made me really happy. So a language like that, it doesn't have to be Java. I know everybody needs Java. People are going to probably stop following me when they hear this podcast, but that's okay. But I want them to get one of those languages under their belt to make them more competitive. And again, give them opportunity to see, do you want to stay in web development or be more of a generalist or go in some other direction? Uh, but yeah, that would be my suggestions. Another one that everyone hates that gets you a lot of jobs is PHP. Yes. That... Language gets just, man, you would think it's just the redheaded stepchild of the programming languages. <laughs> PHP is everywhere. It's all of WordPress, right? It's PHP. 
and people are still hiring for PHP jobs every day. And interestingly, I'm so glad you brought that up. So I've noticed not locally, but with some people that I've interacted with in other states, that because there's like this running away from PHP, oh, that's old, I don't want to touch anything like that. It is creating opportunities. Like it's becoming harder for people to get PHP developers. Like not just that touched it, that are actually good, deep, senior level PHP developers. And uh, to come back to Java, I remember Rock reading a tweet from a hiring manager or technical manager, some sort of a manager with New Relic who said he was having trouble, trouble finding good senior level Java developers because people are just running from these languages, which is their total right, right? Right when they're, whatever you want to write in. But uh, that is an interesting way that new opportunities are being built, that some languages get so blacklisted in our little community that people who don't mind coding in them, they have more opportunities. So yes, plus one for PHP. One of my main mentors is a PHP guy. He's actually, he helps maintain the Laravel international standards. So shout out to Joe Ferguson from here in the Memphis area. Tell y'all, you all need to move to Memphis. We have some pretty great developers right here. Lawrence, no one wants to live there. <laughs> um. <laughs> it's the heavy sigh for me. Oh, Lawrence. <laughs> Got to shout out my city. Yeah, man. anyway. All right. So when you first started, what were some of the challenges that you uh, ran into coming from a boot camp? Um, when I first started on my job, oh gosh, I just, there's so many things to learn. And I knew that like, there's, it's one thing to know something mentally and then when you're faced with it, it just feels completely different. I think that was Mike Tyson that says that like everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Yeah, coming out of boot camp, I had a plan about how I was going to approach, you know, my new role at FedEx, full stack, full stack software developer and all this. And then the amount of things that you learn that you don't know, it's just overwhelming. And you really have to be able to maintain a pretty even keel mental state, which is typically one of my strengths. And I think that did help me initially to kind of get my grounding a little better. But it was a major challenge just realizing, okay, I've learned all this stuff, but there's an entire world of things I don't know. First task, I have no idea. I've never used um, Git in a team setting before. End up with version control and making PR. That was just a whole world. And that's not technically complicated, but it's a thing. When you add that thing to a list of other things, it can be a little intimidating. So that was a total new world to me. And then like the Groovy scripts for our uh, continuous integration. Never touched or seen Groovy ever. Right, simple little uh, regex expressions that we use on our on our log files to look for different errors and different uh, packages that have gone amiss, things of that nature. Never dealt with that before. So just a mountain of learning. That I'm just coming out of a six month boot camp that was pretty intense, but now I'm on the job and it's like I feel like I've been just treading treading water for the last six months. Like there's a whole lot more stuff to learn. And like again, if you're not you know, careful, if you don't kind of keep yourself on an even kill, it can be, it can be a bit intimidating. You do feel the dreaded imposter syndrome, like, why am I here? Why did they hire me? I don't know any of this stuff. And it took a while for me to learn what I share with others now, which is why I'm real comfortable being a person who shares about experiences dealing with tech, not because I've been doing it for 10, 15 years, or I'm just a genius, but whatever I learned, I'm going to pass with others. And one of the first things I learned was that they didn't hire me because I knew all those things. They hired me because they trusted I could learn them quickly enough to be a person who could make impact. Right? That, that's it. 
they trusted I could learn them quickly enough to be able to make impact and contribute to the team. If they didn't think that was a possibility, they wouldn't have hired me. And uh, that's kind of my encouragement to other people. Don't write yourself out of the race. If you're hired, you're good. Now, learn one thing at a time, right? whatever you need to get the immediate task done, and then move on to the next thing, and on to the next thing, and on to the next thing, knowing that for all of us, right, the most senior of seniors, there's always a next thing. Now, obviously, their next thing will be much more complex than yours and have much more impact. You know, it may change the future of the company, but that's okay. They're still having to learn, too. And their learning is much worse because when you get to senior and advisor level, right, and particularly architect level, some of the problems they solve are things that aren't stack overflowable. Right? They're just new, new, new issues. And you know, there might be documentation, there might be a white paper, maybe just conversing repeatedly with other developers on the level or other architects on the level, like, how are we going to solve this? And so from that perspective, I'm kind of happy with the problems, the things that I get to have to learn because it's all Googleable. Like it's all whatever I run into, somebody has seen it before. It's a matter of Googling it and learning it and then implementing it. Okay. Um, what are some of the resources that helped you um, when you were getting started? I already have here uh, Free Code Camp, uh, two courses on Udemy. Uh, you specifically called out the Cold Steel Web Developer Bootcamp. Yes. Uh, the web development program at Udacity and Coding Phase. Uh, is there anything else? Those are the ones all prior to FedEx. Now, since I've been here, and this is very much a large Java shop, uh, relying on Java specific resources has become the thing. So I would definitely shout out uh, In 28 Minutes, which is both a, I think a YouTube channel as well as a um, courses on Udemy. In 28 Minutes is solid. Um, for quick examples, I learn a lot from quick examples. If I can find like a, a short tutorial on whatever, maybe the first time I dealt with you know, Java naming JDI, whatever JDI is, or something of that nature, uh, Baildung, B-A-E-L-D-U-N-G. Fantastic website for little quick short tutorials. You just need to ramp up on something real quickly to just implement it. You don't need to go you know, deep into 100 pages of documentation. You just need a quick snippet a quick shot at this particular concept. Bell Dung is great. I mentioned in 28 minutes, Java Brains. Java Brains is a solid Java-based YouTube channel. I relied on it a lot. Fun fact. So, and I think I mentioned this on uh, an interview the other day I had with someone else, but in my first days, talking about imposter syndrome, my first days at FedEx, one of the things that kind of set on me was, you know, how I'm going to be looked at by the other developers. Oh, this person went to Vanderbilt. This person went to Rhodes College. This person went here. This person went there. And I basically went to Udemy University. That's not, uh, <laughs> it's not the same. It's just not the same. And lo and behold, within the first two weeks, I see three developers on the job, all learning some new thing on Udemy courses. I was like, wow, really? So that made me feel a whole lot better. I believe they were the in part of the in 28 minutes, I in in 28 minutes series. Uh, that was very comforting. So yeah, a lot of Udemy, Bell Dung, Java Brains, and yeah, those are the main resources I've gone to. Even now, thinking like even now, I have those bookmarks. I'm always referring to uh, Java Brains and things like that. And then just random documentation, like for anything that pops up. So. Like when I first had to learn some SQL, just, just finding documentation in the web, dealing with databases, uh, getting a little deeper in that. It was cool. The um, the entire curriculum for my boot camp is open source. 
So I actually went back to some of the curriculum and had to refresh myself on some things. Uh, but I was already familiar with it. I already been over it once. So that was like a quick read to get wrapped up on some things. I remember when I first had to do a database-related task. And then everything else is just finding the documentation or finding a tutorial. Um, first time I had to deal with Splunk. First time I had to deal with Jenkins on down the line. Okay. Um, so you've mentioned already that you've had like a mentor. Um, would you recommend uh, that new developers find a mentor? Or do you think there's like a certain point where you would need one? Yeah, that's very different for everybody. That's probably going to be my answer for like all the questions. Individual decision. What I don't think is that it's a requirement that every beginning developer, you know, find this one person and that one person is going to sit in the seat called mentor and they're going to sit in the seat called mentee and it's going to be like a certain kind of relationship. That is not a requirement by any means. And I've heard some weird things like the Twitter spaces that kind of have me questioning, like, you know, you're setting yourself up for failure because a lot of people don't want to be in that position like that. Like it's too rigid. Uh, what has worked for me is just being a person who observes people and feeling like I can learn something from everyone. And the more successful a person is in an arena that's of interest to me, I'll say they're a mentor. I don't care if I haven't met them yet or not. Like they're a mentor, that they are a mentor. They are a person who I'm going to guide this part of my life or this part of my coding career or this part of how I approach problems from. So it could be uh, James Quick, who's a huge mentor in person. One of the first people I met in tech, there's two people that I have to shout out, Ted Patterson and James Q. Quick, two of the first people I ever met when I finally got out of the confines of my loft in Oxford, Mississippi, and started driving 90 miles to come to a tech meetup because I read somewhere you learn a lot better and you have better job opportunities. You start meeting people. So I got out the house and came to the closest tech meetup that I could come to because the one in town was only for college students. So I had to drive from Oxford to Memphis. I met James Q. Quick many years ago and Ted Patterson, and they were just good, decent people. Didn't lie to me, didn't try to sell me anything. Openly showed me their projects, their GitHubs, their whole career story, and gave me free advice. I was like, I want to be like that. First day, very first meetup, I went home. I'm driving home like, I want to be like those two. I totally want to be like those two, and I've maintained both of them as friends ever since. Later on, I began to get more and more involved in the Memphis tech community, and again, I ran across people like Joe Ferguson, who I mentioned earlier. He actually is, uh, Jesus, what is his position? But he, he runs the Memphis Technology Foundation, under which there are a number of smaller organizations dealing with Memphis tech meetups. Uh, the one that I talk about a lot I'll talk about later, I'm sure, is Code Connector that I run. It's under that Memphis Tech umbrella. All that rolls up to Joe Ferguson, who's just an OG, an OG, like a PHP Laravel guy, but also a very DevOps guy and one of the most empathetic leaders that I've ever mentioned, been, I've ever seen or ever met. So he's a mentor, whether he knows it or not. And people like George Spate and Bryce Sharp here in the Memphis area, amazing mentors. Um, George is WordPress and JavaScript guy. Bryce is JavaScript and Python guy, I think. Yeah. But yeah, just cool people who are really smart and don't mind sharing with others. And they seem to be doing pretty darn well in their career. So those are local mentors. And then you begin to expand your scope and you meet people on, or you see people on social media, on YouTube, on TikTok. And for each one of them, hey, there's things I can learn. And so um, I love Scott Hanselman's approach to tech careers and life in general. So I've made him a mentor just recently, whether he knows it or not. Shout out to Scott Hanselman, who I met at the Render 2022 conference in Atlanta. 
in person. Um, definitely a mentor. Angie Jones, who is a Java champion, currently a senior developer advocate or senior developer manager, uh, advocate manager at Block. Total Java champion. She's killing it out there. And lots of other people. So what's worked for me is not trying to find one person. It's just going to be, you know, they're the sensei and I'm the humble student. That's For me, that was not effective. For others, that might work. But for me, it's just been observing people and finding things that I can learn from as many people as possible that can contribute to what I'm trying to do. Um, you know, it can be Kelsey Hightower doing a live coding <laughs> exercise with Kubernetes. I met uh, Kelsey at a FedEx, uh, a FedEx event that Google had. And, uh, you know, he absolutely killed it. I'm like, okay, putting him on the list. Definitely putting him on the list because you can learn something from everybody. He, he exemplifies, I mean, just command of the room and the live coding and the technical depth with humor. Like it was just a lot of great things at once. So I do the multi-mentor model. Okay. Um, I have some quick like quality of life type questions. Hmm. All right. So what, what's like one or two things that you enjoy the most about your job? Enjoy about my job. I enjoy being treated like an adult. Again, that's a comparison thing. You're in the restaurant business. I've been general manager, about to become a district manager of multiple multi-million dollar stores and do something wrong. And you, you are literally spoken to like a child. And I dare you to say something back. Like it's just, it just doesn't go away. That's that world. That's that world. That doesn't happen here. At least it hasn't happened yet. And I feel confident enough in my abilities and my network where if it did happen, I would bounce in a minute. So being treated like an adult, a capable adult, being given a task, an opportunity to succeed in that task on my own without micromanagement is fantastic. I absolutely love that. Um, again, the actual syntax of the code doesn't do a lot to me. I do love wins. So I'm a highly competitive person. I love wins. So whenever we do something that's great, whenever our team uh, gets an award, uh, we actually had two members of our team get the five-star award, which is the highest award uh, FedEx gives out to an individual just last week. So that was really, really cool. Like two people on the same team, like must be doing something right. Um, and it was the architect and the person that just got promoted to an architect. So we have like two architects now. But yeah, they both got five stars awards. I love winning. So I like being on winning teams. Anything that's a win is great. And like I said earlier, um, our team and the leadership we have on our team and the experience has made us one of the better producing teams, I think, in personal opinion, in the company. So I like just being in that environment and uh, I like being around smart people, um, not just like, oh, I got good grades in you know, high school or college or something, uh, but people who are intellectually curious and like to dig into things and explore things um, in a deep way. That, that, I, that is the type of environment I like to work in. And uh, you do find that in tech pretty often. Yeah, um, this is just personal anecdotal evidence, but um, in my experience, the people who got good grades in school often don't make good developers. Mm. It's the, the lazy people are the best developers, in my experience. The, there you go. So the lazy kids who barely yeah. scrape by. I can see that. Yeah, the person who got the hard B, not the easy A. Yeah. All right. So, what are some of the things that you don't enjoy as much about the job? It can't all be like cupcakes and rainbows. No, so um, I would say two things. Um, 
the benefit of working at the type of company where I work, of which in, in terms of the pace, it's not going to be too fast of a pace or things change too quickly. Sometimes that can be a drag because we go through for any change, for any move to production, for anything we want to do, we go through a number of approvals that approaches what I would think would be government level. Like there are so many sign-offs for everything that that could be that could be a drag. And even in areas where we're trying to be as a company, as an opco, more innovative and adopt uh, you know more rapid changes, more rapid deployments, things of that nature, the approvals are still stuck in the old way of thinking. So, you know, you have somebody who will come on like, you know, a WebEx or whatever, like the town hall, and they're talking about the future state of how we're going to be developing and where our IT department's going and, you know, these rapid deployments, doing things in a much more modern way that you might find in a tech company. But then the implementation still looks like, like 1990. <laughs> and why, like, why do we have so many approvals for everything? And they're required. They're not going anywhere. It's like set in stone. You're not getting around it. and so. That's a bit frustrating at times. And the only other part is is on-call. I absolutely hate on-call. And so far, it's been a quiet week. My on-call started like, whatever, 9 this morning. It's been a quiet day. But man, you'll be having a quiet week. Everything's going good. And out of nowhere, just one call will just, it just pulls you out of a mental space because you could be like in casual, personal, family and friends mode. And you instantly have to turn on work mode because if they say, hey, there's a bridge call, Hey, that's your managers on there. You're on there. Maybe your architects on there. Maybe your directors on there. Our principal is on there, and then you don't know who's on there for other teams. Uh, depending on the severity, the vice president might be on there. One of them, um, and, you, and you have to just turn it on, and that's kind of jarring. But uh, it comes with the comes with the role. The good thing for our team is we have so many developers now. We only are on call once every. Oh gosh, maybe eight weeks, which isn't bad when I talk about to other people. Or when I talk to other people, that's not bad. It's like once every eight weeks, it's not bad at all. But still, when it rolls around, particularly like for me, like it's on my birthday, and I could have switched with somebody and swapped weeks out, but I just swapped weeks out for the last one. And you know, you don't want to just keep going to the well and run the well dry. So I'm like, screw it. I'm not going to do any more birthdays here anyway. So I'll just do it. It'll be okay. But yeah, I am not a fan of on call. I'm not sure who all will hear this podcast, but just for reference, on-call means for one week. Uh, for us, it's from Monday morning to the next Monday morning. And again, for us, it's once every eight weeks. You are the go-to person for any of your systems that are misbehaving, any of the programs and applications you have out in the wild that are not doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, you will be the person that gets the call. Now, the good thing about uh, the way we have it set up, you are not necessarily the absolute person who has to fix it on the spot. Obviously, if you can, great. Uh, but the more typical scenario is that you're going to probably loop in uh, one or two other people, depending on how deep technical things may get. Um, if we have something like a, you know, some, a lot of database errors, um, we, we have a number of situations where the answer is literally turn it on, turn it off. Like a number of situations like that. Database errors, typically you'll just handle that by yourself. Um, capacity errors dealing with our servers and our log servers, little things. Little, Cron, not cron jobs, but little things going on with the log servers. Um, we can all handle that you know, by ourselves. Um, simple errors that we can research um, using our databases. You know, We can handle that by yourself. But once you start talking about things happening between your system and other systems, particularly downstream, then a lot of times you have to loop somebody else in um, into the conversation. 
And even that's not fun, right? If it's, it's Saturday, three o'clock, everybody's just chilling, right? We're just enjoying your day. And then you get something that's just way beyond your capability and you have to call another person. That sucks. But I don't want to get that call, but you have to. It's just the way things are set up because you have to get it up and running before you have planes that can't take off. And that's thousands upon thousands of dollars lost per minute. So nobody wants that on their head. Okay. Um, you seem to be on call quite a bit. Weren't you just on call like six weeks ago? How frequent are these on call rotations? Mine was, so that's what I was just saying. Yes. Yeah, so my last one was like six weeks ago, but I think I had a swap because I had something else going on during my week. So I actually got a little, the, the, uh, yeah, the time between the last one and this one is more frequent than normal. Ours is about once every eight weeks, which again, is not too bad. All right. So when you get like mentally blocked trying to solve something, um, what what do you what do you do? What are some of the things you can do? Yeah. So that doesn't happen a lot, but when it does, just kind of standard stuff. I don't have a secret sauce for that. If I've done if I've done the research, I feel like I need to do. I've looked at documentation. I've looked at similar systems. I do a lot of comparing with other code bases, even things we've done in the pro in the past to see how we approach different problems. See, hey, maybe I can try this or try that. If I can't get anything from any of those resources before I ask someone, I'll just take some time myself, like literally just get up and leave the desk, go outside, get some air, go to Starbucks, get a coffee, whatever. Just just get away from it. Just turn my brain off and then come back to it. Sometimes that's enough. Um, maybe half the time, I guess. I don't know. I've never done the data on it. But <laughs> maybe half the time that's just enough. Just to get away from it. I've been going too hard. I'm just too nose down, right? I'm, I can't see the forest with the trees anymore. And so I have to just step away, get a new environment, come back and that'll solve it. And when that doesn't do it, then I just reach out, reach out to other people. And uh, again, I'm on a really cool team uh, that is super willing to help in any situation that you need. Uh, I can rattle names, but they're not on this podcast. But I, I'm thinking of a number of people who have no issue with being called on teams or just pinged, as we said, which is a little DM. Uh, via Microsoft Teams and say, hey, what do you think about this kind of problem? I just chalk it through. Um, that's really, really helpful. I try to use that as a last resort because, again, I hate running the well dry on anything. So I, I will struggle with it for a while. But I mean, if it's a task, I think, hey, this should be done today. I've done everything I can possibly think of for an hour. I walked away, came back, spent another hour. Oh, that's it. I'm, I'm calling for help. I'm calling for it. I mean, because I don't want it to pass the day and you know, end up messing up my whole week. Okay. Um, so how are you feeling about the career outlook for full stack development uh, based on your experience? Do you think it's going to become more in demand, less in demand? Do you think it'll maybe branch out or be combined with other roles? Yeah. Um, so I think full stack development is already the combination. Um, I do not think it's going to be, so if they were talking long-term, right? Years to the future. I do not think uh, being only a full stack, excuse me, only a front-end developer or only a backend developer is going to be that marketable because there's just so many in the pipeline that you're going to have to have something else in your tool set to make you a competitive candidate. And I believe software develop, uh, excuse me, a full stack developer is that combining. It's, it's, it's both. Now, and the, the only exception I could see would be a front end person that is absolutely so deep front end, particularly if you have certain type of projects, maybe it's a migration, right? And I mentioned Burn Stack earlier. They're going from, from Burn Stack to 
God, I don't know, a Python Django front, you know, front end system with us who would do that. But and the person happens to be deep enough to be very well versed in, in both. But that's going to most of most probably happen on more of a senior level. You're not going to find that happening on a junior level. Um, but I could see that or a person who is similarly super, super deep um, on the back end. But long term, uh, full stack web development, which we, we just call it web development, right? Let's just throw away the words. Web development is not going anywhere. Everything is on the web. Everything that's not on the web is going to the web or some version therein. And, and you access it through the internet. And so it will always have to have people managing it, designing it, building it, making it faster, making it more appealing, making it more sticky. That is not going anywhere. Like in the foreseeable future, um, the, the type of medium may change. You know, there's, you know, the Web3 talk, I'm going to introduce that here. But if for any odd reason that would actually play out in a practical way, and then, you know, you would simply make a shift that would just make sense. Um, it's, it's still the web. The web is still the web. It's not going anywhere. Um, it's just not. And uh, there will always be opportunities. And the key for people would be just to watch, like watch society, watch not the noise, but watch what companies are actually doing, right? And, you know, even the, you know, the top tech companies that we sometimes love, sometimes hate, watch the directions that they're going with their technology, with what they're doing internally. And you can kind of get some idea around what's a smart way to go or whatever. Google started pumping Go, and I, I really thought, you know, this is going to be some ridiculous fad. And then it seemed to become like a go-to language for Kubernetes on you know, that DevOps side of the world. And so now it is a mainstay, like knowing Go very, very well if you're a DevOps person. It's almost automatic. It's like Go, Python, Kubernetes, Go, right? And so just paying attention is going to be super beneficial. But to your original question, yeah, software development for the web, it's not going anywhere, like in our generation. And even as the web transforms, those will still be just different types of web developers. We might not even call it that, but the fundamentals will still be the same because the net is the net. And literally in 2022, yeah, working on 2023 and probably a few months, it feels like um, the same HTT protocols that invented the web with Sir Tim Berners-Lee back in like 91 or whatever, we use those same protocols today. They, they, they have it. HTTP is still HTTP all these years later. So the net is the net, the web is the web, and there will always be people needed to design, build, and maintain and error-proof systems for that web. That's a good point to insert a Web3 joke. <laughs> one, yeah, I, I, I tread lightly in that area. We lose followers. <laughs> uh, I, anyone following me that likes Web3 is going to unfollow me eventually, so I don't care. All right, so... This is the most important question um, that I ask people. Um, are you are you happy with the, your choice to become a full stack developer so far, or do you maybe wish you did something else or specialized in a different area of software? Oh uh, yeah, I'm very happy with my choice. Uh, it is working for me for all the reasons that I mentioned earlier, and for the type of day to day tasks that I engage in now. Again, so something that I've done for the last two years. I have enough time, spare time, that I'm actually have been a TA for the same boot camp that I was a student in, which has been really cool. Uh, not for the money because they paid pennies. I'm definitely not in it for the money. I couldn't buy a good steak dinner for the beds. But I do it for the love and for the ability to help other people on the same journey that I took. And so, yeah, doing this type of job has really afforded me that now. And I think about because I read sometimes like on Team Blind or Reddit or things like there's some people who you know, code all day and into the night. They have, you know, plenty of reasons to be working at six and seven, like on a fairly regular basis. 
I'm not interested in that. That's that's not what I'm trying to do. I like nine to five in that nice clean block. And so, like I said, I've been able to use a lot of that after work time towards um, helping others. Um, I actually just finished my last cohort, like third cohort, within the last couple of weeks. We graduated a lot of students, and I actually um, told the re the recruiting guy, the person who's over all the staffing, like, "Hey, I'm going to stop for now because I'm going to work on some personal upskilling, right? Working on learning data structures and algorithms for the first time in depth." And people are like, "Dude, you're a developer. I can't believe you don't know that. I haven't had to know it." Until now. <laughs> so that's some personal development that I have the time to do. But yeah, definitely happy with my choice. Um, it's a good starting place that I still recommend for people. And I can still be exposed to enough technologies where if I wanted to branch out into a different direction, I could totally do that. Um, I actually toyed with the idea of going like cloud engineer for a while, early, early in my journey. And it just seemed like, man, like, so I describe my job as rather mundane, but man, cloud just... For me, for my personal purposes and likes, it just seemed really, really boring. Like everything is just like connecting Legos. That, that's, that's literally how I saw it. Like it's just configurations, 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 script, configurations, configurations, define this this way, define this this way, define this this way. Like that's it. Like, <laughs> and then that's a super oversimplification. Shout out to all the DevOps folks and cloud folks who make our lives so much better. We love you. But that's just not something that I can see myself doing long term. Um, before I got into tech, I actually even explored management consulting. I had a long conversation with my wife, like, would you deal with me leaving it, you know, on the plane Monday morning and going to the client and coming back on Friday afternoon every week? Could you handle that? She's like, yes. So I started reading about management consulting. And after a while, that seemed pretty boring, like worse than what I'm doing now, like significantly worse. Um, yes, yeah, so a lot of career choices out there. A lot of things people can do, people do well, but I'm happy with where I landed. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I looked into cloud, um, cloud engineering as well, and uh, it looks like like 90% of it is just like logging and monitoring and updating stuff. Yeah, exactly. And shout out to the people that do that, but that is not for Lawrence. All right. Uh, so this is the last question about the job. Um, do you have any words of wisdom or encouragement for anyone looking to get into full stack development? Sure. Um, words of wisdom is give yourself a chance. That's the main thing I want to put out as a word of wisdom. Um, whatever path makes sense to you, if it's a collegiate route, boot camp route, strictly self-taught route. Um, if you think you want to try this, just give yourself a chance. There's no pressure. If you're not in tech right now, there's no pressure that it has to work like next month. And so my word of wisdom is to give yourself a chance and explore this programming world from a more, innov not innovative, from a more playful discovery type of side of thing as opposed to, I must do the following six steps to be a developer before Christmas. Like, that's, that's not a good approach. And I think people are burning themselves out and setting themselves up for some really unrealistic, unrealistic expectations, um, being that steadfast in the very, very beginning, the very, very beginning should be more about the fun aspect, the exploratory aspect. Hey, let me try cloud engineering. Mm, don't like that. Hey, let me try this over here. Mm, don't like that. Let me try this over here. Hey, I love UX, UI design. I can bring some of my former art skills to play in. No, I love dealing with people more and seeing a project to the end. I can use my leader skills. So as you do that discovery and play in the initial stage, giving yourself a chance, some things will resonate more with you. Some things will be like, no, I'm not doing that. 
And that's a great stage to be because after you discover your thing through that process of discovery, then you can reach out to the winning teams of the world, the people who have made it, and say, hey, I have done the research, I've done some exploration, and I definitely want to work on game engines. Can you help me with a path? Right? So that's a nice, well-formed question. But too often people are asking that question before they did the discovery, uh, just being in too much of a rush because maybe trying to make up for lost time or maybe they're an older adult like me and, you know, time slipping away or whatever. But even for us, I thoroughly encourage people in the beginning stages, just discover. And even for like a kid in high school, right? You may think you want to get into quote unquote tech. Great. High school is a great time to just get on your freaking computer and just explore and just play with stuff before it matters. And some things are going to resonate with you more than others. Maybe none of it resonates. Maybe you're like, this is all crap. I, I thought I wanted to get into tech, but I don't like any of this. And I tweeted this the other day. There's a really fine balance between doing what you love and doing what pays. There's a fine balance. 30, 40 years ago, the phrase was real simple. Hey, do what you love and then find a way to make money from it. Like all the success coaches said that. Do what you love and find a way to make money from it. Do what you love and not a single day will feel like work. Well, guess what? In 2022, sometimes doing what you love will leave you broke. And so I think a more effective approach these days is do what you need to do long enough to facilitate being able to do what you want to do. And in my case, yeah, that's moving into tech um, is definitely doing what I need to do. And I like it enough where it's not, you know what I'm saying? It's not just complete mental drudgery, just some pull my hair, hair out every day. I'm doing what I need to do in order to facilitate doing what I really want to do at this stage in life is probably just not work. But that's another story entirely. So that's my, my thing, yeah. Just give yourself a chance. Let the first stage be all about exploratory play. All of the old school big tech names that you can imagine, I don't care if it's Bill Gates, if it's Stern, uh, Steve Wozniak from, from Apple, if all of the old school tech names, their journeys in tech really started with play. Often in high school, middle school, elementary school, but it was just tinkering with stuff. Steve always calls himself a tinkerer. He's a tinkerer at heart. Not, never was like this the super big businessman at Apple, but even before there was an Apple, he was a hobbyist. They like going to the computer store and just screwing around with different parts and seeing what they could make or blow up. Like that was the attitude. And from that playful spirit of discovery, this is going to sound real, real. Disney-like, but seriously, genius is born. And and I think some of us are missing our genius because we're so in a rush to get this job and live this lifetime and check off all these check boxes. When did you ever just just play with the tech just for yourself? Sorry about that. That was a word. And see what you can do for it for yourself to see what you do like and what you don't like and what you can find out that might not even be in a book. I think that's a super, super valuable step for anybody considering this path. Uh. Yeah, I feel you. I mean, per personally, um, I I think Jobs isn't much of a tinkerer from what I've seen. I think he's just really good at hiring people to build stuff that he comes up with while he takes drugs. Um, but that's, that's neither here nor there. Yeah, well, he was the business <laughs> side. That's why I didn't bring him up. I only mentioned Steve, the engineer. Yeah, uh, yeah I actually went to a boot camp uh, that Steve Wozniak developed. Um, was you? Yeah, I went there. We will have to talk about that scholarship. offline. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right, so let's get into some personal stuff. You like to cook a lot. 
But what are some of your favorite things to eat? Man, my mother's gumbo. My mother makes the best gumbo on the planet. I have only been to one restaurant in my life that even got close. And it's a little place um, in Shreveport that I just went to recently. I was like, this is almost it. My mother's gumbo is the absolute best. So y'all can't have that because you're not going to be public. No pink sauce lady here. Um, but yeah, that is the best. Uh, I like basic foods, man. Just Chuck's Chin Alfredo. I like I like my own ribs. I do some best spare ribs. Um, so I think most of the food that I like is more home food, more home cooked stuff as opposed to something. Now I'm not going to turn, turn down a perfectly cooked medium, you know, filet, you know, with a dollop of butter. And the asparagus, yes, I love those fancy dinners. I just like to eat. I'm greedy, man. That's why I'm kind of round in the middle. I love to eat, period. I could, I could do the food thing forever. But if I say absolute favorite, it's my mom's gumbo. That's tops. Um, my ribs. My chicken's pretty good, too. We're going to leave that for another conversation because you'll bring up Danny and we'll be here forever. But anyway, my ribs. And um, I just like a good, just a good old-fashioned plate of chicken alfredo with good homemade alfredo sauce. Always straight for me. Strikes me just right. So um, I'm curious, like, I, I don't know a lot about meat because I, I haven't really eaten meat, but um, why do they call them spare ribs? Are, are, there, there, are there animals with, like, extra ribs that they don't <laughs> eat? Or is that, like, some other thing? <laughs> oh, my God. Wait a minute. I'm crying. Uh, why do they call them spare ribs? I should know this. Heck, I don't know. I don't know. They're just, they're just pork ribs. Like, why do they call them spare Okay, I'm Googling. I'll be Googling in about 10 minutes. <laughs> I'm sure we're wrapping up. I don't know. Maybe I should have just said ribs, but yeah. Why are spare ribs called spare ribs? Okay, That's a great so, question. Um, you caught me, man. You caught me. We've been going for an hour and 12 minutes, and you finally <laughs> caught me on spare ribs. You suck. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, what What are some of the favorite things? Um, sorry. What was your favorite subject in high school? Let's go there. Oh, God. All right. We're going to just tread on this lightly. We're going to get out of it. But my favorite subject in math in uh, high school was definitely Algebra 2. Algebra 2? I think so. All my math classes were my favorite. But my uh, my Chem 1 class, I love the teacher so much that I got to rank it really high. But I didn't like chemistry that much. I, but math, math was my thing. So Algebra 1, Algebra 2. Um, very high up there, and then so algebra two would be the top, and then algebra one, and then trig and precal. But our precal was was weird, like it was almost like self taught, so that didn't go up very well. We had an absolute nightmare of a teacher for physics. I think I would have loved physics. I'm fairly certain I would have absolutely loved physics if we had just a, a halfway decent teacher. He was horrible. He was like I don't know, 200 years old, and he spoke with this weird. I don't know, was it like a, it wasn't a Southern accent. It was just, oh, it just bothered me. Like I'm having a physical reaction thinking about it right now. Mr. Charles, he just bothered me. And so we had like the worst class. And so naturally people would act up more because the teacher had no control. And so there was like no learning, none. And I think that would have been my favorite class. So my favorite class was Algebra 2. But what I wish was my favorite class would have been Physics. If we had like a decent lab, that would have been pretty, pretty neat. Uh, but yes, I was definitely the math and science nerd in pre-college years that that was me and, uh, 
math, good. I wasn't bad in the life sciences, like biology and stuff, never bad in the life sciences, like just math and like physical sciences. Like I said, physics, I wish. Chemistry was okay, but definitely math. I rocked math. You know, I was president of the math club, went to the math contests and all that type of stuff. Yeah, I feel that. Um, when I was in college, the linear algebra professor, a lot of people hated him. Uh, I think he, he's from one of those um, West African countries that speaks French. So he had like this really mm. thick French accent and no one could understand oh, him half the time. Yeah, it was rough. Yeah, that'll take control out of the class really quickly. Yeah, he, he was a good teacher. So the people that understood him actually knew what was going on, but everyone else was kind of left in the dark. All right. So, gotcha. what was your favorite topic that you learned um, in boot camp? What did the boot camp was it broken up into like classes? Was there like a favorite class or just like a mm. topic? So it was just we met two times a week, three hours per night, and then you had the office hours. And each class, we just kind of went through a single curriculum, uh, one curriculum for the first three months, and then the other one for the next three. Uh, our first three months, we did Python, SQL, a quick run through of HTML and uh, excuse me, Python and Flask. And then like a quick run through of HTML, CSS, and SQL. And then the second half, we did Java and Spring Boot. Um, didn't have a favorite topic. And in that whole thing, nothing, this was kind of a boring answer, but nothing just stood out like, oh, this is the thing. It was just more skills, more skills. And Java section obviously proved to be very beneficial because what I do on a daily basis at work, what I'm actually coding. Um, but yeah, none of, the, none of those parts really just stood out to me in a real special, like, hey, this is my thing, this is my jam type of way. All right. Um, so when you were a child, did you have like a dream job? Man, so many. I was definitely wanting to be an astronaut for the longest time. And then when I got in high school, the plan was, and I can remember this like it was yesterday, I was going to work for Bell Labs. And anyone who hears this that doesn't know what Bell Labs is, I know how old you aren't. But the company back then was Bell Labs. I was going to be a mechanical or an electronics engineer for Bell Labs. I actually wrote this down somewhere. It's on some scratch paper. I'm sure my mom still has. I was going to work for them for five to 10 years. I was going to learn all the secrets of the company. And I was going to start my own engineering firm and just like make gazillions and gazillions of dollars. That was it. I was going to be an engineer with Bell Labs. And of course, Bell Apps has not existed in a long time. So hopefully all your podcast guests will go, but not guests, but new listeners will go back and Google what the heck is Bell Labs and learn about the history of phone companies. So yeah, yeah. Graham Bell is a nice, nice tip for you. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Uh, Bell Labs was an interesting thing. Like I, I watch a lot of stuff that's set in like the 60s and okay. uh, Bell Labs comes up a lot. And uh, I too, at one point was like, it would be kind of cool to work at a company like that if they didn't recruit directly for like the FBI and CIA from Bell Labs. <laughs> yeah, good point. Very good point. Okay, so if you were just given 10 million right now tax-free uh, to spend on whatever you wanted, what would you do? 10 million? Oh, jeez. Was that on the original list of questions? I don't remember that one. Um, 10 million. So what is my lottery plan? Oh, gosh. Uh, Without giving numbers, it would be pretty boring, to be honest. It would be pretty boring. But without giving numbers, there would be a 
major conversations <laughs> with my wife, major planning. Uh, we look at, so I have three kids, uh, my son Malik, my daughter Taylor, my daughter Nina. Um, we would figure out some numbers that make sense for them and distribute that. Let them know this is it. Be smart. <laughs> uh, we would make a list of some other immediate family members, figure out a number for them, distribute that. Let them know this is it. Be smart. And then obviously pay off all debts. Um, we would definitely make a pretty significant contribution to uh, my current local church as well as the one I attended prior to here, uh, which these two interestingly are in a relationship where the preacher from the one where I used to go was actually a member and brother of a preacher with the one I go now. So that's pretty weird, but neat. So definitely would do something along those lines. I'm really happy with the mission work we do locally as well as throughout the uh, country and the globe. And uh, then it would be just like to chill. College fun, definitely go ahead and figure out what we want to do college-wise with my youngest. She's the only one that's not uh, gotten to the college age just yet. And uh, it would just be a chill, man. I would make that work. You know, really diversify it um, with some blue chip stocks, some really safe, slow investments, some buy and hold forever type things. You know, I'd make my own little, you know, Berkshire Hathaway mirror portfolio and uh, and live very meagerly off the interest. I would spend most of my, most of my money would go to work travel. The, the, most of my money would go to work because I want to see everything and I haven't seen much of anything that's interesting to me. Um, I know you have a completely different story, I guess, via the military, what have you, and from where you're from, you've seen a lot of the world. I have not. And so I would absolutely spend a good amount of money wanting to see all that there is to see in this globe and all the different type of people and the type of experiences, and the foods, all there is to see. I want to see this world. One of the things that my mom always said is exposure is the great, greatest teacher. And so expose myself and my wife uh, to a whole lot more things. Yeah, you're like the first, I think I think you might be the first person that has said like they would give money to family. Mm -hmm. I, I think Ace, Ace said he would like buy a house for his mother, but I don't think anyone else even like considered giving any of the money to your family. And, uh, and, there, and there, might be some, there might be some good reasons behind that too. <laughs> But it would be a, yeah, it would be a I, brief I, list of very immediate family. We're not going like too deep. Very very concise list. Yeah, I I did the math. If you invest in the S and P five hundred, uh, two point three million is the number. Uh, if you get the the average on the the bare minimum, where you only get like three percent, um, on your dividends for the year, uh, it will give you around eighty five thousand um in your your dividend if you only take that as salary, and uh. If you get the higher end of the spectrum, um, it'll be like 130, 140 uh, K that you'll get just from dividends if you invest in the S&P 500, 2.3 yeah. million. Slow and boring would be the way, I'm telling you. And once we pay off the house, you know, not this house, but you know, whatever new house we ended up in and everything else is just like, what do we need? Yeah, that, that would absolutely be the way. I would, for no, yeah. I would, under no circumstance, try to live a millionaire lifestyle. I'm pretty sure I'll be broke before I'm dead. That wouldn't be very smart. So it would be a very, yeah, super, super, super safe investment, investing from living off dividends, living off the interest. Let's call it a day. Okay. And what if the 10 million was given to you via a VC firm and you had to use it for a startup? Have to use it for a startup? Oh, oh God. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 shucks, I would probably invest in some startups. <laughs> I 
I, I have no interest in that lifestyle whatsoever. Um, shout out to former Googler Anthony D. Mays, uh, who is working with Carat, K-A-R-A-T, um, interview prep. I'm really excited about what they're doing over there. And the division called Brilliant Black Minds. I know Serena Williams really made a huge investment. So I'll get my Serena Williams on. And uh, drop, excuse me, drops uh, significant funds towards Carrot K A R A T. Put that up online. Um, so yeah, I would do that. Uh, any other startups? It's just so noisy, such a noisy space that I'm not in. And when I peek in, it's just like a thousand bees buzzing around at once. Like nope, nope, nope. I'm out. I'm not in that world. No thanks. Y'all can have it. I wish you well, but no. It's just, it's just too much noise. And uh, so yeah, that would be one. I'll let that be my one. But starting one myself, uh, absolutely I, not. <laughs> yeah, I've I, I've seen some stuff from Carrot. I, I I think it was Carrot. Yeah, I like what they do. They're the ones where like, um, they train you to become like a a mentor to help people train for the coding interviews and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep, is that the one? That is the yeah, one. Yeah, I I I. I don't agree with the pacing of their training, but I think what they're doing is interesting and I haven't seen anything like that. I hope they, they figure out the pacing a little bit better, uh, but I, I think it has potential. Good to hear. All right. So if you could do any job for a day, which job would you pick? Any job for a day? I think I would like to be a university president for a day. So uh, earlier I mentioned the, you know, the whole balance between doing what you love and doing what pays. It's a delicate balance and a personal choice. My ideal job that I figured out would be a middle school teacher. That is the age range that I relate to very, very well. Once I get into high school, I lose them. Like, and I've seen it with my own kids. Like in junior high, I was like the best dude, best dad ever. In high school, they're just in the, in their own worlds, but even beyond my own kids, just with kids I interact with, church, I don't know, neighborhood festivals or whatever, at that junior high range, I can relate to those kids for some dumb reason. I don't know why. And I love to teach. I absolutely, I've always, always, always loved to teach um, in so many different capacities. So that's something that would be great for me as a career, except it doesn't pay crap. We treat our teachers horribly. So we can elevate that to something that actually might make some money. Put me over university for a day. That would be pretty neat. I'm sure they see some some pretty unique issues. They have to make some pretty critical decisions. Uh, probably not regarding curriculum or anything, but just in the course of a day, it's got to be pretty interesting. And I just love academia in general, though I completely disrespected it when I was in it. <laughs> it's, it's hard to tell. I just love, I love academia. Like I don't know, maybe it's in a childlike way. Like, like college campuses, I love humongous libraries like if i'm just on a college campus i just feel like yeah this is where I'm supposed to be. Uh, so a subject for another time but yeah i would love to be a college not a professor because college kids are crazy but make me the uh make me a, at least the dean but preferably like the president president emeritus lawrence yeah i think college professor is probably like the most chill job like i think it, it was voted like the most uh, the college professors are like the happiest employed mm. people because they're at least I guess at the research universities they get to do their research they do their little lectures or whatever 
they don't even have to grade anything. The TAs do all the grading. So they're just kind of just vibing, you know? Yep. That makes sense. And also, I think teaching does pay pretty well, I think. But you have to go private sector. Um, like, I placed in a chess tournament once, and uh, someone from, like, a private school was offering me, like, 85K to teach chess at their school. Oh, um, wow. It, uh, yeah, just to teach chess. So I think the real teachers probably make, like, way more. Interesting. Didn't know that. Yeah. That's, that's a nice number. I, I guess I'm just looking at kind of, like, what is the mean or the average um, you know, across the nation, because there'll be way more public opportunities in private, and they are literally paid crap. They're, they're paid horribly. They're, they're disrespected in their salaries. So I kind of look at what's like the most probable uh, outcome as opposed to, hey, there is this outlying, you know, these private schools that are paying, you know, upper range. That's not most students. If it was, you would have a ton more running in education. Yeah, that's, that's valid. All right. So, um, I think that's that's it for like the personal questions. Um, one last question: Is there anything you'd like to humble brag about or promote? So I can put in the show notes. Absolutely. So I mentioned earlier that there's an organization called Code Connector. Uh, Code Connector is a nonprofit tech meetup group. Uh, we exist for the most part online uh, via our website and our Slack channel. And what we do is we just help people in their transitions into technical careers. Have a particular focus on adults coming from non-traditional backgrounds and underrepresented minorities. So obviously I fit both of those and Co-Connector has done a humongous benefit to me, which is why I've been working with them uh, ever since I joined the organization and now I'm kind of one of the leaders of the organization helping others. So anyone who's in this transition space who needs a supportive community, uh, I emphasize we have nothing to sell. There are no eBooks, no courses, there's nothing to buy. And the resources that we like to point people towards are always going to be free and low-cost resources uh, because we understand most people trying to make a transition already aren't doing well financially. So the last thing you need is a huge financial burden just to learn. Um, so look us up online, coconnector.io. Uh, you can follow the links of where it says join us, join our Slack community. We have different discussions throughout the week on Slack. And then we have three or four meetups a month right now all online. Uh, if you're in the Memphis area, James Q. Quick has started his Sunday meetups under our brand. Um, those are once a month on Sundays at, I think they met at Einstein's in Memphis on Popular last time and had a lot of good time. So we do have one in person in Memphis, but the rest of them happen online. Uh, Winnington, the host today, actually was on our feature speaker. He gave us some really cool stuff about rendering in 3D on the front end. That was fun for our last topic, but... Love people to join there. And even if you're not in the transition, if you're a more senior, you know, any of the high fancy titles we mentioned earlier, you're a principal, staff engineer, we would love for you to join as well because a lot of questions get answered. And the more breadth of knowledge we can get, the more concrete um, answers we can get towards leading people in directions that make sense on their tech journeys. So want as many people who need mentoring, as many people who are willing to be a mentor, even casually, uh, to just join us online at codeconnector.io. Thank you. All right, Lawrence, uh, thank you for being on the podcast, especially on short notice. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me on. I wasn't sure if I had enough to say, but I think we've taken up the time pretty well, so I appreciate it, Winston.